Tonight we're going to be in Psalm 19 as we continue our series entitled Psalms for Supernatural Living. We're going to be talking about supernatural expression. I, I want to read just the first few verses of this psalm and then pray and then we'll get right into our study for this evening. Verse 1 of Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night declares knowledge. There is no speech, and there are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Its going forth is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit extends to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you, Lord, for your presence in our lives. And I, I pray, God, that for the next few moments that your spirit would so inform our hearts and our, and our minds and our spirits that, that this psalm will, will stand us in, in good stead and will begin to do something deep inside of us. Lord, I, I know that this psalm is for us. I know that. I'm convinced of that. I know that you have a word for us today, and I'm asking, Lord, that you would impart your word to us deep in our innermost being, directly to our spirits, God. And I believe you for this. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know, David was a, a brilliant warrior, a, a, a military tactician par excellence. He, he was a politician. He was a king. He was a singer. He was a musician, and he was a brilliant, brilliant poet. It's hard, in fact, to find a flaw in his poetry. And if there would uh, appear to be a flawed poem in, in the Psalms that was produced by, by David, it, it would be Psalm 19. And there are several reasons for this, poetically speaking, on the surface. First, that it appears as if David loses his train of thought uh, three different times. And if you'll just... Notice, uh, uh, with just a cursory examination, there, there appears to be three brief poems that are all unconnected, and then a benediction at the end of the poem, uh, the, these three poems, that has nothing to do with any of, the, any of them at all. So if you look, you'll notice Psalm 19 can be broken up in this way. Verses 1 through 6, which we just read, has to do with God in nature. And then verses 7 through 11... Uh, they have to do with the power of the Bible. And then verses 12 and 13, those are a, a deep, introspective look into his own soul. And then verse 14, which is probably one of the most memorized and fre frequently uh, quoted verses in all of the Bible, it, it just seems to have nothing to do with any uh, of that. Now, and I say that with this one caveat. I, it, it only appears this way on a cursory examination. Uh, we'll come back to that. But secondly, the, the poetic style seems to change as it goes along. The section, uh, the first section about God and nature is, is a free-flowing uh, section. It's open. Uh, look, look at the style of it. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night declares knowledge. You know, and that's beautiful. However, you, you look at the, the next section, it, it's just uh, the, the flat 
almost passionless, doctrinal style of the section, starting in, in verse 7, it, it almost reads like a theology class. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see, it's a... It's a simple, sort of almost a herky-jerky style that just doesn't seem to reflect the style of the first section at all. And then again in verses 12 and 13, it seems as if he has forgotten what he's talking about at all. And he seems as if he's forgotten the styles in which he's been writing because now he turns to look into his own soul. And it's hardly really even poetry at all. It's more, more like a, a deep inward soul searching. It's a, this is the, the prayer of a, of a man that's under deep conviction. It starts in verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be upright and innocent from great transgression. Now, let me just take... Uh, these three sections and, and then the benediction. And then I think you'll see that eventually David sort of sets us up for a big surprise in the end. At, at first you have this idea that David has completely forgotten uh, what he's doing. It seems as, as if he's going to write a poem. He starts to write a poem about the, uh, the, with the, about the free-flowing free flowing glory of God and, and His expression in nature and then it's like he gets bored and, it, and he just decides to write a poem about the power of the Bible and the authority of the Bible. And then, and then having been put under conviction by, what, by his own poem, by what he just wrote, he starts to pray. And then he finishes his prayer and he decides to write a benediction for the entire congregation of the people of God to say. And, and, and you say, well, what then? What can be the connection between these things? Well, they... They tie together magnificently. And I, and I see in here this, in this passage that not only was the Holy Spirit inspiring David, but the Holy Spirit was having access to a brilliant, brilliant intellect that was honed to a, a razor's edge and, and he was bringing forth out of it the experience of his childhood. Now, now remember who's writing th this poem Here's a lad who grew up on the hillsides of Galilee and, and he only had two volumes in his library. One was, the first volume was the trees and the, and the grass and the flowers and the sheep and all of creation around him that he could see with his eyes. And the other volume was the book of Moses, the, the book of the law that, 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 the, that the Israelites had. And all he knew about the world and, and life and his perceptions and his value judgments and his integrity and his character and his faith and, and his future, it, it was all shaped with that limited library of the word and, his, and the world. To David, you know, the singing, seeming contradictions of science, falsely so-called, and the word of God with which we struggle in the contemporary world uh, it would be absolutely meaningless. He, he wouldn't even understand the argument because David states it plainly from the beginning. He says, I see God in everything. Look at it. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. 
in everything he sees, in every star twinkling on the, on the night horizon, every, the morning star when he sees it, looking out at the beauty of the Milky Way and every cloud, the storm that passes through, every lightning strike, even if it knocks out his air conditioning, or, and every clap of thunder, everything there, everything, he sees it all and he says, I see God in all of it, in all of it. How interesting that near the end of the New Testament, the writer of Jude, he talks about people learning and never coming to the truth. They're learning and learning and learning and learning and never actually coming to the knowledge of the truth. However, this simple shepherd boy saw the truth in everything that he saw. You know, I, I, I marvel that a true scientist can be an atheist. I marvel at it. How can anybody uh, examine the intricacies of DNA and say that it was just a cosmic accident? Uh, I mean, look at your hand. Just, just look at it. There, there, there is no machine that can compare with your hand. The, uh, you know, the, the most creative uh, in, inventions of, the, of Disney's Imagineers, you know, they, they, they can't compare with your hand. Not even in their wildest imaginations do the engineers at NASA begin to think of manufacturing something as magnificent as your hand. David says the heavens declare the glory of God. And he, he just uses some magnificent speech here. Notice in verses 2 and 3. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night declares knowledge. There is no speech and there are no words. Their voice is not heard. Now, if you will, just hold that place and turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You know, I think that Paul, uh, being a former Pharisee, very well schooled in the, in the Old Testament, I'm sure that he was very familiar with the book of Psalms and very familiar with Psalm 19 when he wrote this. He said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth through unrighteousness, for what may be, listen to this, for what may be known about God is clear to them since God has shown it to them. The invisible things about him, his eternal power and deity have been clearly seen, have been clearly seen through the, since the creation of the world and are understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. In other words, Paul and David both agree that God has manifestly proven his creative authorship in everything we see in every drop of water uh, i see the reflection of god's face and in every grain of sand we see the manifest thumbprint of god in me despite all of my frailties and, and inabilities and sins and all my weaknesses the marvel that god can take a a, a lump of clay and make a man is just beyond my reckoning you know people say it, that it's a leap of faith to believe in God. But that's nothing. That's nothing. The leap of faith is to believe that some speck of, of primordial goo washed up on a beach somewhere and over eons and eons of time just accidentally evolved into a man. Now, in that case, now you're talking faith. Now, the matter of the fact is that David was right. He said, he said I see the Creator in all of creation clearly. And Paul added that those who deny it are without excuse because he has written it plainly on, on the creation. L look at some of the beautiful words he uses. I, I like verse 5 in particular. 
you know, he, he has a sense of humor, I think, in this. I, I don't want to offend anybody with this, but it's just a little humorous to me. Let, let's pick it up at the, really at the very end of verse 4 and get into verse 5. He says, In them, the, the vast population of the firmament, has he set a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Now, now look at that first part of verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Now, I don't know, is that, that's funny to me. Don't, I think that's hilarious because, you know, I, I, the picture is a, the, the, the first morning of his honeymoon, the, the young bridegroom steps out on the balcony of his hotel and he is just full of joy and happiness. Life is good, you know? It's just kind of funny to me. David says that's the way the sun is every morning. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the sun has been moving through its traces and, and every morning is like a bridegroom on that first morning that he, as he steps out of his chamber. He says, like a strong man, not some tired old dope moving across the sky that can barely make it, but a strong man ready for the race every morning, ready to jump out of the blocks and run the race. David says, I see the energy and I see the power of God when I look at all of this. It, it, he's, he says, if, if God made the sun into which I can't even look without burning my eyes, the, it, it, then what then is the face of God like? He, he says, if, if God spoke the sun into existence, what energy, what unlimited, unparalleled power must be in the palms of his hands? Look at verse 6. It's going forth is from one end of the heavens and its circuit extends to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, he seems to be drawing an allegorical parallel between the way the sun moves in its natural order and its penetrating rays of heat and energy and light uh, moving to every place on the face of the earth, touching, healing, raising, prospering, warming, strengthening, and he's drawing a parallel between that and God himself. You know, Jesus is spoken of the same way when the Bible talks about Jesus being the son of righteous, righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. You know, that passage in the King James uh, seems a little bit obtuse to us. You know, the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings. What does that mean? But can I paraphrase for, for you? It, it means something like this. As the natural sun rises, beaming forth heat and energy, so the son of righteousness rises, bringing forth healing power. You know, the, the sun can give heat and light. Why? Why does the sun give heat and light? Well, the sun gives heat and light because it is heat and light. The sun simply does what it is, do you see? And so energy is not something that the sun gives. The sun is energy. And in the same way, the sun of righteousness rises with healing, beaming forth his, his rays because he is healing, because he is wholeness, because he is righteousness, because he is our salvation. These are not just things that he does for us. These are what he is. These are who he is. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is our sanctification. He is our wholeness. In the same way that the Son re uh, re reveals to us 
the, the world, it, it reveals to us a witness of Jesus. But now look, in verse 7, all of a sudden, David just simply drops what he's talking about and he switches to the Bible. Talks about the law. Now, the law is a generic term. It may mean spe the specific issues dealing with the Ten Commandments. It may mean the ordinances of God. It's used that way in Bible. It can, it can mean the commandments of God. It can mean the entire written Word of God. It just simply means all, all of the express revelation of God's Word. Verse 7, read it with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let's stop right there for a moment and look at this. David is talking about the power of the Word of God, the power of the Bible to change a life. Now, now, I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. I believe, believe it is possible for a man to, to memorize every verse in the Bible, every, every scripture that's, that's in, in, in the Bible. It's possible for him to, to know every verse in the Bible, every scripture, and still go to hell. I believe that. I believe that's possible. However, I believe that every verse he learns makes that a little harder. I, I believe in the, in the sheer power of the Word of God. You know, I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of children who were raised on the Word of God. In fact, maybe this is, this is a big part of my testimony, but, but I've heard testimonies of children who were raised on the Word of God. They just cut their teeth on the, on the Bible, who wandered away into the things of the world and got off into all kinds of sin and, in their young uh, adult days. And then along comes a moment of crisis, and then all of a sudden those things which they learned in their childhood just sort of rise up within them and they remember verses of scripture that they didn't even know that they knew they didn't even realize that they had learned those they didn't know they had those memorized but they rise up within them and God witnesses to that word and it reverberates in their souls and their lives are changed you know that's the reason I love Sunday school that's the reason I love Bible studies that's the reason I love kids church in the zone your kids need to be involved in all of these things. You know, we, we, listen, we need the Word of God. We need the Word of God. We need to take advantage of every occasion to get more of the Bible, not only for my kids. You know, Sunday school is not just for children. Sunday school is for everyone. If, listen, if you're so wonderful and so marvelous and so strong in the things of God that you don't need another 45 minutes of serious teaching in God's Word, then my brother, pinch yourself. You may already be in heaven. You may already be there. No, I, I, listen, I want the Word of God in my life in every way I can get it because I believe that the Word of God has power to change. Look at the verbs that David uses. Starting in verse 7, he talks about converting and making wise and rejoicing and enlightening and, and bringing a sense of eternity. He says they endure forever. Let, let me ask you this. Are these things that you want God to do in your life? Well, if so, listen. The Bible is the key to all of these things in your life. You know, one of the most shocking aberrations of the contemporary American church, particularly, uh, well, in, in, well, just in the world today, 
It's the, the, the most shocking, one of the most shocking aberrations of all is the biblically illiterate Christian. The Christian that just doesn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They don't know the difference between Paul and Abraham. They, they can't find the book of Psalms and they don't know what Revelation is about and they don't know anything about the teachings of, of the book of Genesis and they don't know the Ten Commandments and, and, and my goodness, there's no way they can ever find the Ten Commandments in the, in the Bible. See, polls are shocking in what they reveal. They, they reveal an American public that is intellectually and culturally Christian uh, you know, because a large percentage of, American, of the American public claims to be Christian. However, only a small percentage of them can actually say what the Ten Commandments are. You know, something like 75% of Americans say that they believe in God, but only 40% actually say they, be, they believe in hell. And, you know, that's amazing because the Bible is, is very clear. It's perfectly clear. This is not like it's a vague idea. But the rule and the guide and the authority of our teaching and our living and our, the decisions that we make and the, and the structures we set up for our life, it, it, it all has to be, be, it has to come from the Bible. People say, you know, they think, say things like, oh, I don't want to hear about all that Bible stuff. Just talk to, me about, talk to me about Jesus. I like Jesus, but I don't like that other stuff. But the problem is this. How, how can I know what I believe to, to be true about God unless I find it in God's Word? How can I know what I believe to be true about Jesus unless I find it in Jesus' book? No, no, the Bible has power to change me. You know, I think one reason that many, many people come into an experience of faith with God and, and then they just kind of peter out, they just don't go on with God. You know, they go to the altar somewhere, they get saved, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're, they're, they may even receive some sort of a miracle or a healing around the altar and, and they flourish for a while, do really, really well, maybe for a few weeks, maybe for a few months, maybe even for a few years, and then they're just gone like that. And you wonder, why didn't they just go on? What happened? Well, the reason is clear. Many people don't go, on, don't go on with God because they don't put roots down into the soil that gives them strength and nourishment. That's the Word of God. The Bible has the power to change. The Bible has the, it has the power to convert. It has the power to enlighten. It has the power to make you wise. I mean, listen to me, business person. The greatest business book on the planet Earth uh, is the book of Proverbs. If, if you will base your business on the book of Proverbs, I am absolutely confident that God will reveal to you how to make wise decisions in the corporate boardroom that, that you never learned how to make in business school. Uh, I'm talking about things that will spare you uh, severe agony and severe pain. Parents, parents, you want to know how to raise your children for Christ? Get into the book of Ephesians. Husbands and wives, you, don't want, you want to know how to live with each other without killing each other? Read the book of Ephesians. Uh, you know, with God's word, we learn how to live with each other and how to enjoy and how to be blessed in it. I, I, listen, it's just an absolute miracle in, with the brokenness of humanity that two people can live together for years and, and, and they both actually survive. Now, this, the secret for a happy marriage is no secret at all. It's in God's word, written in black and white. I, I like verse six, or excuse me, verse eight says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You know, isn't that upside down from what, how the world sees the statutes of God? 
The, the world has tried to paint Christianity as you know, this sort of a fuddy-duddy pilgrim that, that, that's just all uptight and judgmental, that's always saying, thou shalt not anything fun. <laughs> that's how they see us. But, but that's, the truth is that's a perversion of reality, isn't it? You know, the happiest people on earth, the happiest people I know are people who are Christians who are surrendered to Christ. I mean, have you ever heard someone give a testimony and they say something like, boy, it's just so hard to be a Christian. You ever heard that? It's hard to be a Christian. No, sir. I do not believe that, not for one second. The Bible says the way of the transgressors is hard. That's Proverbs 13, 15. It's not hard to, to, to have happiness and joy and peace and love. It's not hard to wake up in the morning without a hangar over. It's, it's not hard to wake up in the morning and know where you are and, and, and know who you're with and to know what you did the night before. That's not hard. What's hard is dying of alcoholism. What's hard is, is, is walking through and, and, and having having abortions, what's hard is living with fear and guilt and condemnation in our lives. You see, every time you break the law of God, it brings sadness. The great tragedy of sin is not just its immorality, it's the abiding devastation that it brings to us. See, righteousness does not bind people up. See, the, the world has this thing so crazy. They've got it all backwards. They, they, want, they want us to dance to their, to their tune. They want us to fit into their prejudicial stereotype of this is what it means to be a Christian. You know, they want everybody to look and talk and act and, dry, and dress like the church lady, you know. Could it be Satan? You know, they, they just, well, that's who they want us to be. It isn't going to happen that way. Because they've underestimated the power of God. They, they've underestimated the joy that the Holy Spirit brings into the life of the believer. Listen, the statutes of God don't make people unhappy. They don't bind people up. It's breaking the statutes of God that does those things. The statues of God in my life, that's not, that's not what made me a backslidden and wounded young man who had broken every statute of God. I was bound and, and broken and I was unhappy and my life wasn't going anywhere. I lived in fear and I hated myself and I hated the, uh, the church and I didn't want anything to do with the things of God. No, the, the statutes of God are not what binds people up. It's breaking the statutes of God. David is now talking about the changing power of the word of god and he talks about how desirable it is look at verse 10 more to be desired are they than gold yes than much fine gold sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb moreover by them is your servant warned and by keeping them comes great reward blessings in every way you know, years ago, a theology professor was talking about this psalm, and as he was talking about it, one of the students spoke up and he asked a question. He said, sir, you talk about this psalm as if there is an element of self-interest in Christianity. He said, you're acting like you're a Christian because of what it does for you. And the professor looked at him and said, well, yes, of course, of course. You know, don't romanticize Christianity. Don't over-spiritualize it, if I can put it that way. You know, don't over-spiritualize it and say, oh, I, I'm not a Christian because I want to go to heaven and because I want to be happy and because I, I want to be blessed and because I want to know the joy of God in my life. I'm a Christian just because it's right. Now, the Bible says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are 
pleasures forevermore. You know, when you are full, that means that your appetite has been satisfied. You're so full that you, you can't eat anymore. You just can't take another bite. And, and God says, in my presence, there are so many blessings that you can't even take them all in. In my presence, there is fullness of happiness that I can fill you with so much joy and so much happiness that you can't even take any more of it in. You know, Peter wrote that in Christ, we have joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And then the psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You see, blessed, happy, joyful, overjoyed, these are the things that God wants to bring into your lives. And you know what? It's good to accept these things. It's, a, it's okay to want these things in my life. There is an element of self-interest in Christianity. I want to be happy, not sad. I want to be fulfilled, not empty. I want to be purposeful, not, not, not directionless. I want to be giving and loving and not self-centered. I want to live forever, not die forever. I want to go to heaven, not to hell. I want to be blessed and not cursed. I, I mean, let's just quit lying to ourselves. It's okay. It's okay to say that there's an eternal reward that, that is found in following Jesus, and I want that reward. Now then, all of a sudden, David changes again. He's talked about God in nature. He's talked about the Word of God and the power of the Word to change a man. Now all of a sudden, he changes again. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and by keeping them comes great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. When he, when he says to him, that to himself, the warning of God is coming through. He, he's saying, yeah, but what about David? What, what about David? He turns his eyes inward. Aren't our eyes also turned inward? Looking at ourselves, he, he says, God, I'm not going to blame anybody else. What about me? Who can understand his errors? He's, he's asking, why do I do the things that I do? I mean, is there nothing in your life that, that, uh, that's unexplainable to you? Is there no attitude that doesn't make sense in the light of your Christian convictions? There are in mine. Is there never a wrong thought? Are, 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 is there never inappropriate attitudes? Is there never a wrong motive? If so, I envy you. I mean, is there never a time in your life where you say to yourself, why did I feel that? Why did I do that? You know, you're riding along in your car, listening to praise and worship music, and you're, you're praying in tongues, and all of a sudden, some, some sucker with a Michigan license plate cuts you off in traffic. And you're like, God, get him! <laughs> And then all of a sudden, on the heels of that, you're like, oh, I didn't feel that. God bless him and bless Michigan too. You see, David is more realistic than we are. He, he says, I can't understand my own error. He says, I don't understand why I feel the things that I feel. He says, I don't understand why I do the things that I do from time to time. He says, oh God, cleanse me from secret sin. 
Cleanse me from secret faults is what he actually says. I, you know, I heard one man who was teaching this passage and he said something that I don't agree with at all. He, he said that this passage was talking about sins that I commit without knowing that I'm committing them. I, I don't believe that. No, no. The Bible teaches us that sin is a deliberate violation of God's will. Secret sins are those sins that I have kept hidden from your eyes and, and I've tried to keep them hidden from my own eyes and try to pretend like they don't exist and I've even thought that I've hidden them from God's eyes. Secret sins are, are those things that I have deliberately, willfully ignored for so long that they have begun to be hidden from me even though I really know that they're, that they're there. There are sins with which I have peacefully coexisted for so long that I've begun to accept a level of the unacceptable. You know, one, one of the reasons for this, unfortunately, is the great emphasis in the 50s, 60s, and even in the 70s on unquestioned grace from the American pulpit that, that said no matter what you do, everything is okay. And now that's great. Grace is awesome. Grace is powerful. The grace is greater than any sin. But there was often no sense of having to line up our lives with the Word of God. And I believe that what God is awakening in the heart of the church is going to be a return to holiness. We've heard grace. We know that we're forgiven. The question is, how do I live? I want to get this right. How do I live? I think that when we begin to ask questions like that, then Things with which I existed very peacefully last year are suddenly going to be very painful to me again today. You know, I'm pre predicting this to you, that if you begin to pray a prayer like this, where you say, oh God, reveal to me those sins that, that I knew were sins 10 years ago that I've begun to live with and I've begun making excuses to myself over. When you pray that, He will do that. He'll do that. And when you see them, you'll say, you know, I remember when I first got saved, God spoke to me about this and I just suppressed it. I pushed it down. I pushed it off to the side. I ignored it. And I've just been saying, oh, well, God just forgives everything until it became less painful to me than it should have been. The way God cleanses us from secret sins is to keep them from being secret. The way God cleanses us from, being, from secret faults is to keep them from being secret. Listen, God is serious about this. He is so serious about this that I'm more afraid of hiding a sin or really trying to hide a sin because you can never really hide a sin. But I'm more afraid of trying to hide a sin than I am of confessing the sin. You understand what I'm talking about? I think that God says that which you whisper in the back closet, I'll, I will shout from the, from the housetops if, it will, if that's what it takes to save you and set you free from that. I, I urge you to consider the possibility that anything hidden before it's over with, God may intend for it not to be hidden any longer. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. What is a presumptuous sin? A presumptuous sin is a sin in which I continue deliberately presuming upon the grace of God, saying I'm going to do this because I know God will forgive me after I've done it. And look at the last part of that verse. May they not rule over me. Look at the steps into bondage. Verse 12, secret sins. Verse 13, presumptuous sins, abiding in sin, going on in deliberate sin until eventually, finally, sin has dominion over me. Sin rules over me. He says, if, 
then I will be upright and innocent from great transgression. Now, now look at the progression. If I avoid secret sin, if I'm honest with myself and honest before God, if I look at sin for what it really is and don't allow it to become hidden and obsessive in my life, then God will save me and convert me and change me by the power of His Word and the power of His grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. He will continue the sanctifying process in me to overcome these things in my life so that I will not continue in presumptuous sin and therefore I will not fall into the bondage of obsession. Then I will be saved from the great transgression. I don't know all that's meant by that phrase, the great transgression, but I believe he may be sneaking up into the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit now, I want to say a word about this because this haunts so many people. I've heard so many people talk about this. There are many, many people that live in fear that they have committed the great unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to be very clear about this. The unforgivable sin is to reach a level of, of, of such total self-worship that you deliberately willfully libel the ministry of Jesus for the specific purpose of turning people away from Him by labeling the Holy Spirit as, as a spirit of Satan. That's what the Pharisees did that Jesus labeled as, as the unforgivable sin. They, they deliberately, uh, it, this is to deliberately and willfully libel the ministry of Jesus to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and label it as satanic in order to turn people away from Jesus. You know, there have been many ministers from mainline denominations that have said things against the work of the Holy Spirit, against the gifts of the Spirit, against miracles, against all of these things, but they have said them very often out of ignorance and error. However, they never did it deliberately to keep people away from Christianity. And I don't believe that they've committed the great transgression. I don't believe that's what's happened there. However, I do believe that it's possible to get into such depths of depravity, such serious and intentional sin that it becomes obsessive and then becomes bondage in our lives and then we can commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in order to justify the things that we're doing. That's the downward spiral. Then David says, having gone right to the depths of his own soul, saying, oh God, cleanse me, convert me, heal me, save me, change me. David closes with this, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. What is he saying? He's talking about the very first section. He's saying, O God, a flower that shows your glory and your beauty fulfills its purpose in creation by manifesting who you are in terms of its own presence in creation. God do that in me. You see what this means? This means that I become part of God's great manifestation of His creative power in the creative order. This means that God is not at odds with my humanity. He's not fighting with my flesh. He wants to glorify Himself in my humanity. God is not standing back completely aghast at my clay. Paul said, he said, we have this treasure in earthen, earthen vessels or in clay pots. God wants to, to explore the parameters of my humanity and He's going to do it in me in terms of me. And that's a good thing. Now listen to this, you're going to like this. 
the Holy Spirit is not in the business of stamping out tiny little Christians with a cookie cutter. You know, uh, that I all know uh, all the right things to say. They, they can all talk exactly alike. They, they know when to put their hands up in the right places in the praise and worship songs. And they know how to say praise the Lord like, like commas in their sentences. The, the business of the Holy Spirit, it, that's not what He does. The business of the Holy Spirit is to explore you in terms of you. Let, let me explain it like this. You know, when I first uh, started in ministry, um, as a young preacher, I, I heard different ministers, heard different people preaching. And I mean, there are some amazing communicators of the word out there, and they always have been. And I remember hearing these guys, and I was just amazed by them. I thought, how in the world, how in the world do they do that? I, I don't get this. And I remember praying and saying, God, I, I can't be like those guys. I'm not that, that good. I can't do that. I'm not, I can't be like them. And God looked at me and he, he responded by saying, well, you're right for once. For once in your life, you got it right. And he said, instead, let's find out who you are. Look, don't try to be some other Christian that you admire. It, it won't work for you. It, it may not even be working for them. Let God help you find out who you are in Christ. You don't, don't try to be Pastor Dave. Don't be, try to be some other Christian that you admire. Listen, you don't know their problems. You don't know my problems. Let God figure out who you are. You know, there is a wonder in nature. When you, when you look at nature, you, you just see the exposition of God. There is such variety in nature. You, you have irises and marigolds and roses. Now, I want to tell you right now, I just don't know one thing about plants and flowers. I know very little I don't know a kumquat from a grapefruit, which is exactly why my wife does not send me to the store for grapefruit. But anyway, you look at irises. To me, they, they look like gentle old southern ladies welcoming you into their garden. Well, welcome, y'all. Come on in my garden. Isn't it so pretty? Welcome. And I know some of you are laughing right now. You be nice. Marigolds, on the other hand, you know, they just push themselves up through the dirt and they say, I'm a marigold. Who likes it? You know, they, 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 there are no heirs. They're not trying to put on for anybody. They're not trying to do anything. They're just like, I'm a marigold. Let's get on with it. And you know, I love roses. They're beautiful. Oh, thank God for roses. Because when you've sinned against your wife, 12 of them will get you back into her good graces very quickly. Well, the irises in the garden, they're looking at the marigolds and they're saying, why can't you be more iris-like? And the marigolds are saying, you bunch of old fuddy-duddies spreading out all over the place and, and, and acting like irises. Come on, be a marigold. It, it just won't work, you see? And then, the, then there are the roses off in the background. They're saying, oh, you're all just such peasants. No, no, listen, a church full of roses is boring. A church full of marigolds is boring. A church full of, of irises is boring. It, it, there's a beauty in his creation. And, and you know what? God has a sense of humor. I can prove it to you. Just turn to the people that are sitting uh, near you and look at them. He has a sense of humor. Now, I have to say this. If the people that you're, that you're sitting with are laughing harder than you are, you might want to check yourself out. That's just a, a little uh, side note there. But see, David says, he says, God 
manifest yourself in the world through me. You know, Tommy Tyson once said, he said, when, we, when will we come to the maturity to allow God to be as wonderfully creative and unique in everybody else as he is in me? That's good, isn't it? I wish I would have thought of that. Let God explore the parameters of your humanity, of your giftedness, of who he created you to be in order to bring forth out of that richness and power and ministry and enlightenment and creativity filled with the word of God to, to bring out things in you that you never even realized were there. Allow him to, to show you the sins with which you have been peacefully coexisting for all these years. And, and when he shines the, the floodlight on those spiders in the corner, then don't haggle with him and don't try to cut a deal. Instead, just fall before him like David did and say, cleanse me, oh God. I, 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 it's there and I've known it's been there for a long time. Cleanse me. You see, the great prayer of being part of God's creation, the great prayer of the creative order is let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we want you to change us. And Lord, we know that your word has the power to change us. So God, I pray that right now that you would just put, begin to stir up in us a new hunger, a new desire, a new passion for your word and the power that's in your word. Because God, we want to be changed so that like all of creation, God, we can reflect your beauty and that people can look at us and we can, we, that, that, that your glory can be made manifest in this creation through your people. So God changes. And Lord, if there's, if there's that secret sin, Lord, I pray you would help us to deal with it. If there's been that presumptuous sin where we've been intentionally making these decisions and saying, oh, God will forgive me later. God, I pray that you'd help us to deal with it. Lord, let us not to get, get to the place in our lives where we peacefully coexist with sin in our lives. But God, let that pain be real. Let that desire, Lord, to, be, to obey you become powerful in our lives. And in so doing, I know this, I know, God, that you will glorify your name through us. And that, Lord, you will cleanse us and we will be full, full of joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And for that, we thank you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.